Support for NPR comes from ADP. Say you're in HR and a solar flare adds an extra hour to each day. How would this impact business? ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to help your business take on the next anything. ADP, always designing for people. Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon is everything an Oscar contender might be. It's long, epic, morally complicated, and expensive. While many moviegoers left theaters moved, others called the film a problematic disaster. I'm Stephen Thompson, and the Pop Culture Happy Hour team is off today, so we're bringing you an episode of NPR's It's Been a Minute, all about what Killers of the Flower Moon got wrong and how it fits into a broader history of Native Americans on screen. This message comes from NPR's sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit TeladocHealth.com slash What's Your Why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C Health slash What's Your Why. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at BetterHelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the official Hacks podcast from Max. Join the creators and showrunners of Hacks as they discuss each episode and speak with the cast and crew about the making of the series. Listen to the official Hacks podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. Hey, hey, I'm Brittany Luce, and you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, a show where we talk about what's going on in our culture and why it doesn't happen by accident. And a warning to listeners, this episode includes mentions of racialized violence and murder. Today, we're talking about Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon, and why some American audiences are leaving the Oscar contender deeply disappointed and even hurt. I had a one word, which was just disaster. I think it worked as a piece of filmmaking, yes, but I think there's a lot that's missing. It's an intriguing film. I had some serious issues with storytelling and what gets left out of the story. For those of you who may be unfamiliar, Killers of the Flower Moon is the most recent entry into Scorsese's catalog of aggrieved white male characters. It stars two of Marty's favorites, Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro, as well as the dazzling Willie Gladstone, in an American epic about greed, thievery, and unspeakable betrayal, set on the Osage land of Oklahoma about a century ago. It's also three and a half hours long. I'm here to speak with Molly Burkhardt, whose sisters and mother is dead. She's my wife. Now, I'm a longtime Scorsese fan, so the running time didn't bother me so much. 
I found Killers of the Flower Moon to be an impressive feat, beautifully directed and superbly acted. It felt like after years of showing white men as the hero, Scorsese subverted expectations to paint them as villains. But still, like so many viewers, I was haunted by the story of Killers for days after I saw it. Based on the Pulitzer Prize-winning book of the same name, the film tells the story of the reign of terror in the plains of Oklahoma. From 1918 to 1931, over 60 members of the Osage Nation were murdered for their land and their oil wealth by white settlers. Robert De Niro plays William Hale, one of the masterminds behind the murders, and Leonardo DiCaprio plays his nephew, Ernest Burkhart, who becomes a part of the plot to marry into, poison, and steal Osage wealth. I don't know what you said, but it must have been Indian for handsome devil. Lily Gladstone plays Molly Kyle, a wealthy Osage woman who marries Ernest Burkhart. And as she buries her mother, her sisters, and becomes very sick herself, she finds her husband is not the man she thought he was. Killers of the Flower Moon has received many a rave review, and it's primed to become an Oscar favorite. But critiques of the film have also run deep, raising hugely important questions about our movies and their inability to grapple with the American destruction of indigenous communities, even when the very best filmmakers try their very best. That's the view I'm unpacking today with three incredible guests. Liza Black, a history professor at Indiana University Bloomington and Cherokee Nation citizen, Nancy Marie Mythlow, a gender studies professor at UCLA, and Fort Sill Chiricahua Warm Springs Apache citizen, and Robert Warrior, who teaches literature at the University of Kansas and is an Osage Nation citizen. Welcome to It's Been a Minute, Nancy Marie Mythlow. Good morning. And Robert Warrior, welcome. Good morning. And Liza Black, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. Wonderful. Okay, so I would like to hear more from each of you about how you think the film works as a piece of storytelling about Native Americans and the Osage people. Unfortunately, in the U.S., these stories are woefully undertaught to non-Native people. And so when a movie gets made, it can become the de facto shorthand understanding of that history or of those people. Robert, you wrote a piece about how the film missed a huge opportunity to talk about the government's actual role in, in setting all of this horror up. There are so many different ways to tell an Osage story. I think that this one has been told before. One of the reasons why the federal government didn't show up in the first place is because the federal government is what initiated what was going on hmm. through policies. And I think one of the traps has been to presume that by talking about these murders, that somehow solves the problem. That the murders were solved, and then the reign of terror was over. Nothing could be further from the truth. I think that that was a way to avert attention away from the underlying issues in federal policy and in the history, particularly of the Osages, but also within the larger history of Native American dispossession that led to this. Looking at how much focus the film puts on the whole plot for Ernest to marry Molly and then kill her for her inheritance and head rights, which is horrific in and of itself, it does set us up to miss the forest for the trees and not see the depth of the government's implication, which is an interesting choice because, of course, you know, the last third of the film 
And also the point of view of the book, Killers of the Flower Moon, was really driven by this Texas Ranger U.S. Marshal who's been sent from Washington to actually fix things without really making clear just how much the government is implicated in also being the quote-unquote bad guy of this story. We see the people who show up to take advantage of the situation, Mm -hmm. but we don't really see the actual bureaucrats who are there to make all of this work. And without the context of the presence of federal policy of the specific history, I think it limits the choices you can make about the story of their marriage. I mean, I think that their marriage is wrapped up in all of this. I mean, I'm just thinking aloud with you guys, but... I think Mm -hmm. the marriage indicates choice, right? Mm -hmm. To movie going audience that they both had free will. Okay. And they were both somehow equal. Like you were imagining that the Osage people and Burkhardt, you know, have somehow just accidentally, magically fallen in love. And that distorts the narrative. I think that's what you were referring to, Robert, because, you know, there, there is no free choice for the Osage people at this point. It mm. is a reign of terror at this point. And so the marriage trope, it, it doesn't look anything like a love story to me. Oh my gosh, Nancy, Robert, I am so glad y'all have brought that up because my understanding was that the love part, it was just something that like Ernest told himself, like as a self-delusion to continue doing whatever evil he was doing. But as I've seen more and more criticism of the film, the love story part continues to show up as something people are centering in the story. It's an accessory. It's an accessory to another hero's journey into the wilderness. It's basically a Western. I mean, give us a break. And if you're a hero, you got to find, you know, a love interest while you're out there in the wilderness having your journey with the exotic others, you know. So it's all part of that larger narrative. (sighs) Eliza, I want to hear from you on this. How do you think that this film works as, you know, a a piece of storytelling about the Osage people and Native Americans. I think it did a terrible job, really, of of telling the story in spite of the tremendous effort that went into this film and the tremendous consultation with Osages that went into this film. Let me say that the Osages in this movie kicked ass. I mean, that scene where all the Osage men are just riffing, like, that's an incredible scene. So let's not forget that those folks did a great job in the movie. But I was really shocked by what I saw as a lack of storytelling, actually. I was very surprised there wasn't a narrator to help Hmm. viewers manage all of these details. And I really want people to understand what Robert's saying is there's, there's a lack of history in this film. And there's also a rejection of connecting this story to the present. Hmm. These aren't policies that are of the past. These are policies impacting Osage people now. There's many other churches, trusts, individuals who are currently occupying head rights. So I would just beseech your goodwilled listeners to engage with this. Hmm. Hmm. You know, the Western, as you all have mentioned, is one of Hollywood's iconic genres, foundational genres, really. But it hasn't necessarily centered Native American stories or told them with a lot of depth or accuracy. How have you seen the representation of Native American people change over the decades in American cinema? You all have touched on some of the headlining tropes already, but I'd like to hear from you maybe more in depth. What are some of the tropes that emerge 
also when you think about that representation over the past 100 years. Nancy? I just want to get this out here really plain and clear. More images does not equate into more equity, right? Mm. And having a heightened emotion, which violence will prompt, does not equate into empathy. So we're working with a a lot of, I I think, really Mm. base understandings that are incorrect. We think that if we can see someone suffering, we'll immediately have empathy in that emotion will somehow translate into social policy. And for Native Americans, it's specific and it's unique from other marginalized communities because when you prompt for empathy, basically what gets triggered is this objectification because Native people are objects, just like mascots, just like our artifacts, just like our bones, you know, just like the resources, our land and our our, our, our water and our minerals, right? They're, they're mm. there for extraction and exploitation and, and commodification. So Native people and, and the research that I've been pursuing with a, a social scientist, Sasha Sherman, basically can't be put in that same research category as any minoritized population in the United Hmm. States because people trigger differently with Native people. They objectify them more readily, and it has everything to do with the cowboys and Indians trope. And this Hmm. film just extends that trope further. You've blown my mind telling me that mainstream audiences respond differently to Native Americans than they do any other like minoritized group in the United States. As a Black person, that is mind-blowing to me. One of the things I kept turning over in my head was about the choice to like center Ernest Burkhart, to center someone like Leonardo DiCaprio, and to have his uncle played by Robert De Niro, who's kind of masterminding a lot of these marriage plots. I kept thinking, well, it makes sense that Martin Scorsese would choose to cast those actors and have those characters be the center of the story in some way, because my assumption was if the story centered on on the Native American characters, that the mainstream white film-going audience would over-identify with the Native American characters and see themselves as them without seeing themselves as party to the violence that was enacted upon them. And it's very interesting that you bring that up as something that you've seen in your work, like that that can be a thing that happens. If you're interested in social change, you have to have both the perpetrator and the victim in the same scene with equal agency. If you don't have that, then you're not going to be able to move to a space of equity or empathy. Mm, 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 mm. You know, I, I want to hear from you, Liza, about placing this film in the context of Hollywood cinema, how you see the sort of longer history of Native American representation in American cinema, and what tropes jump out for you within that history as well. My question would be, how has the representation of white characters changed over the history of cinema? Because we've laid out a lot of problems with the movie, but I think another central problem to add to that list is the problem of white characters. I think that the movie refuses, really, to Mm -hmm. turn Ernest into a villain. I think Mm. it even refuses to turn William into a villain. Mm. And so I, I just really want to make it clear, I feel that the problem in the history of cinema is Hollywood's refusal to portray white characters as pre, the premeditated murderers and dispossessors of Native people. Th- this is what Hollywood is really afraid to do. That is such an interesting point. We think a lot about American cinema as a form of 
self-mythologizing when it comes to quote-unquote American values or certainly American history, but there's almost like a self-infantilizing that you're getting at. Their agency to carry out these genocidal crimes is not being shown in a full-throated way. Is that what you're saying, Liza? Yes, and I'm, I'm dying to know Robert's thoughts, too. Yes, me too. <laughs> He's nodding a lot um, <laughs> and probably has a lot to say. The part of the agency, too, here that is really particularly disturbing was the idea that I think the f- film portrays that the Osages didn't know what was going on. They didn't know. They knew people were being killed. Right. They, and that somehow, you know, the one scene where they say, you know, we would have gone out and killed these people, you know, if we could, if we just knew who they were. Right, right. You know, but but I think that they did have an awareness of what was going on. It wasn't that they needed to somehow figure out who are these individuals who are killing us. It's look at the system that's in place. And then somehow William Hale is enlisting all of the white people from the Osage reservation at the time. All of them seem to be in the know that all of this is going on and the Osages don't know. Listen, I can, any reservation community I've ever been in, it's not as though that the white people on the, in that community are more clued in to what's happening in it than the native mm-hmm. people. I mean, that goes back to a sort of Du Boisian double consciousness, right? You say like native people living in those environments, they have to have a double, triple, quadruple consciousness of the world around them, right? So I think that people had a really strong awareness, but you see this embrace in the film of William Hale and never sort of somebody rolling their eyes and going, oh God, this guy again, Mm -hmm. right? And, And why not that? Yeah, that was something that felt missing for me with the film. I think it also indicates a gap in perspective, but also in lived experience. Like if you've never really had to back channel in that kind of way, then why would you put it in your film? Right. Another question for you. Many critics and viewers, even those who appreciated the film, still felt like the Native American characters deserved more screen time, especially Ernest's wife, Molly, played by Lily Gladstone. Critics have also noted that in their depictions, the Osage characters still felt like they fell into the same stereotypical pitfalls for Native American women. Their victims were love objects. And this is a characterization that's not new and unfortunately not uncommon in American cinema. How can we sort of break out of that kind of characterization? Narratively, what would you like to see done differently to break out of that while still telling a true story? Great question. I think this is not the movie to show that Native women are powerful, right? And I don't know how you could take that story and sort of say, all Native women are, you know, leaders. I don't know that this would be the right movie or the right story to tell to show that Native women are strong and powerful leaders who are articulate and bold, <laughs> which which Native women are. Hmm. But if he had found other ways to connect it to the present and sort of shown Osage women who are leaders, who are articulate and on the front lines of fighting for their nation, you could do it this way. But I think we have such a long way to go with representations of Native women, but I do mm. think it's bound to Hollywood's refusal to let go of the white hero trope. Hmm. 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 A lot of times people think that the way to combat a film that they don't like is to make a better film, and that can sometimes be helpful. But even thinking about film itself as a medium and what it's built on and what the industry around it is built on, it's kind of antithetical to telling the kind of story that it seems like that I know I want to see, um, and that it sounds like you all want to see as well. Yeah, this conversation reminds me of when people talk about museums and how to decolonize them. You know, there's never a thought for, well, are museums inherently a colonial institution, and are they, like, redeemable? You know, I'd have to ask the same question with film. 
right? Mm. You know, you've given film a hundred years to tell the story of cowboys and Indians. Is the film industry taking its job as a storyteller really seriously, or has it relinquished that role to commerce? Because if entertainment means murdering Native women mm. and men on screen, and you're going to mm. eat popcorn and laugh and Somehow that's what America's ready to pay money for and what the industry is ready to invest millions of dollars in. Then that to me is a sign of maybe the film industry is irretrievable at this moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do we make the media better for Native people? The one thing I would say to everybody who's listening is, you know, the one thing you can always control is what you're watching. And one thing, sometimes the best thing to do about bad media is to turn it off. Hmm. and to turn off the television. You may want it to get better, but you can always turn it off and say, there's got to be something better to do with my time than watching this. Robert, Nancy, Liza, thank you so much for joining me today. This was a dream of a conversation, and I'm really grateful that I got to unpack it with you all. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Brittany. Thank you all so much. Thank you, Brittany. I really appreciated our talk. Thanks again to Robert Warrior. Hall Distinguished Professor of American Literature and Culture at the University of Kansas and Osage Nation Citizen. Dr. Liza Black, Associate Professor, Native American and Indigenous Studies and Cherokee Nation Citizen. And Dr. Nancy Marie Miflo, Gender Studies Professor at UCLA and Fort Sill Chiricahua, Warm Springs Apache Citizen. This episode of It's Been a Minute was produced by Corey Antonio Rose, Barton Girdwood. Our editor is Jessica Placek, Bilal Qureshi. Engineering support came from Patrick Murray, Maggie Luthar. Our executive producer is Verilyn Williams. Our VP of programming is Yolanda Sanguini. Our senior VP of programming is Anya Grundman. All right, that's all for this episode of It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. Talk soon. Support for NPR and the following message come from Bombas. Bombas makes absurdly soft socks, underwear, and t-shirts. And for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Get 20% off your first purchase at bombas.com NPR and use code NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR.